Speaker and writer Brian Tracy made the following statement. Your ability to discipline yourself to set clear goals and then to work toward them every day will do more to guarantee your success than any other single factor. What he's basically saying is that it takes discipline and hard work to get what you want out of life. But he's not telling us anything that we haven't already heard and don't already know. In fact, from the time we were very young, we learned that life is all about working to earn what you want out of life. For example, when we learn how to, to uh, crawl, we seek to earn the praise of our parents. When we take our first step, we want to hear that praise from our parents. And we learn that if we do certain things, we get that praise. We learn, for instance, that when we are able to recite the alphabet and then write the alphabet, that we get the, the praise of our teachers, we get the praise of our parents, and we even get the acceptance of children around us. We also learn that failure in these areas results in loss. It results in a loss of praise. It results in a loss of acceptance. It results in a loss of a real sense of worth at a very young age. We learn that working hard in athletics will earn us a place on the team. We also learn that if we work harder than everyone on the team, it will earn us a starting position in the lineup. In grade school, we learn that if we behave a certain way and achieve certain things, we might even get awarded the student of the month. And if we outshine all the other students of the month, we might even be called student of the year. In high school, we learn that if we make high enough grades and if we participate in the right extracurricular activities, we can earn a scholarship to college. In fact, it's in school where we learn that um, what we earn has a lot to do with the groups that we will associate with and the cliques that we will end up with. I remember in high school, uh, uh, well, or before high school, when I was uh, a 12-year-old and I played Little League ball, my friends that I played Little League baseball with, we were, we were just really tight. And from 12 years old to 13 years old to 14 years old to 15 years old, we all played together. When we got to high school, um, two of my very best friends went out with me. All three of us went out for the high school baseball team. They didn't make the team. I made the team. And I soon discovered that a lot of my interaction was with them was the two or three hours after school that we were practicing and playing baseball. And that vanished. And guess what? My friendships with them vanished. Now, they didn't become enemies, but we just didn't see each other. And so we learn that things that we earn often will have a direct impact on what we want out of life. And we learn this as adults as well. We know this. We learn that we need to do certain things in order to earn a raise or earn a promotion at our jobs. And we believe that the more we earn now, the more we will earn later through things such as Social Security and retirement. 
And so we live our lives from the very beginning thinking about earning and what must I do to get what I want. And if that's not enough, we see that in every major religion. Every major religion accentuates the need to work and earn eternal life. Hinduism is a system of works. Things that one must do to reach moksha, the Hindu heaven. It involves the practice of yoga, which contrary to what many have heard, um, was not developed first and foremost for the improvement of one's health, but it, it, it rather is a means of dying to one's body, which I've tried yoga and I can see how you feel like you're dying uh, when you're doing this, in the hope of delivering oneself from, from the physical realm. And certainly I did want my mind to leave the physical realm um, during that. Um, this is supposed to yoke one to Brahman, the supreme deity of Hinduism. Reincarnation is a system that supposedly um, enables one to work one's way to heaven through many births, deaths, rebirths, and, and a way of somehow getting better and working toward um, eternal life, working toward heaven. Buddhism, it also is about works. Buddha believed that the key to reaching nirvana, the state of perfect peace and happiness, is through an understanding of the four noble truths and by practicing the noble eightfold path. In essence, the four noble truths declare that we endure suffering because of our desires or cravings. These truths claim that suffering will stop them when we seek or when we cease trying to fulfill these desires. According to Buddhism, we can achieve this by following the Noble Eightfold Path, which has the elements of a right view, a right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. This is all done by human achievement, doing things right in order to reach nirvana. In Islam, paradise is attained when Allah weighs a follower's good works against his bad deeds on a scale at judgment day. The Quran declares, for those things that are good, remove those things that are evil. And so you can cancel out bad things that you have done by doing good things. It's a quantitative process. Good deeds need to outweigh or blot out evil deeds. Again, from the Quran, the balance that day, speaking of judgment day, will be true. Those whose scale of good works will be heavy will prosper. Those whose scale will be light will find their souls in perdition. And in Judaism, heaven is attained by keeping the law and its ceremonies. Now, this is not what the Old Testament teaches. But it is what Judaism has taught for millennia. It's, what, it's for this reason Jesus says in Matthew 15, 9... In vain they do worship God, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so what we see in Judaism is the adding on to what God has taught in his word, and it has ended up to be a works religion. Unitarianism teaches that a person is saved by having a good character. Modern humanism teaches that a person is saved through service to humanity. But there are those even in Christianity who teach that there is a faith that needs to be accompanied by some sort of works to earn salvation. 
Listen to uh, the experience of one gentleman. I quote him as he, he wrote, he said, here's an example from the first 30 years of my life as a Roman Catholic. I lived by a religious system of laws, many of which a Catholic is obligated to keep. It began with baptism. If one is not baptized, the church says he can't enter heaven. It also says that although baptism is required, it is no guarantee. There are many other such rules that a Catholic must keep. I have a book in my office called The Code of Canon Law. It contains 1,752 laws, many of which affect one's eternal destiny. Sins recognized by the Roman Catholic Church are classified as either mortal or venial. A mortal sin is one that damns a person to hell, should he or she die without having had it absolved by a priest. A venial sin doesn't need to be confessed to a priest, but whether confessed or not, all sin adds to one's temporal punishment, which must be expiated either here on earth through suffering or good works or else be purged in the flames of purgatory after one's death. There are obligations that a Catholic must fulfill regarding both beliefs and deeds. For example, one is required to believe that Mary was conceived without sin, an event called the Immaculate Conception. If a Catholic doesn't believe that he commits a mortal sin which carries the penalty of eternal damnation, the feast day of Immaculate Conception is a holy day of obligation, a day on which all Catholics are required to attend Mass. Failure to do so could result in a commission of a mortal sin. But what about some of us who are Southern Baptists? How many of us are trusting and following actions we have taken to get us into heaven with words like this I walked the aisle I prayed the prayer I got baptized I joined the church I go to church I give to the church I read my bible I work in the nursery I helped in vacation bible school I sing in the choir I attend a class, I teach a class, I'm a deacon, I go to seminary, I'm or, an ordained minister, my father was a pastor, my grandfather was a pastor. We've been members of this church for generations. And as if that's not enough, what we often can do is we take verses of scripture, isolate them, Take them out of their context and misuse them. Scriptures like, for instance, Job 34, 11. Speaking of the Lord God, it says he repays people according to their deeds. He treats people as they deserve. Or Romans 2, 6. God will repay each one according to his deeds. So what is at stake with all of this? What's at stake with the idea that we can earn our salvation. Well, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter two, and he says it twice here in Galatians two, in verse five, and then also in verse 14, where he says that it is the truth of the gospel that is at stake. And so when people have some notion of earning or, or being awarded salvation by our works, what is at stake is the gospel itself, the truth of the gospel. And according to Paul, it is an attack on the truth of the gospel. 
And we see that not only is this a problem today, but it was very much a problem in the early church. In fact, the first parts of Galatians 2, um, in verses 1 through 14, we see the Jerusalem Council got together. All the leaders of the church at that time came together for a council. And Paul talks about how the leaders came to an understanding that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone, and it is not by works. Yet he says there were infiltrators even within that council at Jerusalem among the leaders of the church who came in, and he used the word to enslave them by works of the law, by somehow getting them to do works of the law and attaching that to salvation. As if that's not enough, we see after that in Antioch, Paul arrives and he sees Peter, and Peter is not eating with Gentiles. And it's not only Peter, but Barnabas himself who got involved in all of this, went along with Peter, and he was also giving in to this wrong thinking. Now, did they believe it? No, they believed what was true, but they were caving in on their actions to compromise with the pressures of those around them. And so Paul says, basically, he got in Peter's face in front of everyone and said, this is not what is true, and you know it's not the gospel. And what we see then after this, picking up with verse 15 and following, we see what Paul does. He addresses what is the truth of the gospel. And he basically does it in very, three very simple ways. The first thing he does is he states what the truth of the gospel is. Secondly, he states what the truth of the gospel is not. And then thirdly, he states what the truth of the gospel means to every believer. So first of all, let's look at this passage and let's look at what the truth of the gospel is. But let's read um, this whole passage. Let's begin with verse 15 and go through to the end of this chapter. Paul wrote, we are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. So what is the gospel? The truth of the gospel is one is justified through faith in Christ Jesus. One is justified through faith in Christ Jesus. Now three times in this passage here in Galatians 2, Paul uses the word justified or justification. 
So what does this mean? I think it might be easier actually to look at the opposite of what it means. Um, And the opposite of justification is condemnation. And both of them are legal terms, but the word condemnation actually means to declare guilty. It means to be in a courtroom and the judge declares the person on trial guilty. That's condemnation. You are guilty. So justification is another legal term that is the opposite of condemnation. So if condemnation is the declaration of guilt, then justification is the declaration not guilty. Or to put more in a positive sense, it is declaring one innocent or righteous. And so when we look in the Bible, justification refers to God's act of unmerited favor or grace, whereby in his goodness he puts sinners into a right relationship with him on the basis of the person and work of Christ Jesus on Calvary. Not only does he pardon or acquit us, but he also accepts us. He embraces us. He treats us as righteous. He makes us members in his family as sons and daughters with all the benefits and blessings of the heavenly father. Our heavenly father does not see us as wretched, unworthy sinners. But he sees us as righteous, beloved sons and daughters. Let that sink in. That the Lord does not see us as wretched sinners. So why do we, many times, sons and daughters of the Most High, speak of ourselves as wretched, unworthy sinners? That's what we were. That's not who we are. That's what Satan says about us when he gets with God. But that's not what God says about us when he looks at us. Because when the Lord God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is for us to understand and to to embrace that and, and allow it just to soak into us. That we have been, through the work of Jesus Christ, declared not guilty. And God looks at us as if he is looking at the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Now you say, but my problem is I still sin. It is a problem, isn't it? But you know what? What we do is instead of wallowing in the guilt of that, we do what the scripture makes very clear. If I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And we walk in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ and we pick ourselves up and we move on. How many of us who are parents want our children to always just come around us and wallow in tears and just, oh, dad, I'm just not worthy. Now, I kind of, I might not mind that a little bit from my sons actually now that I say that and I think about that no we we don't want our we don't want our children to live this way we want them to have the joy of knowing that we don't keep accounts on them that we love them completely and we recognize they've blown it 
we recognize that we blow it. Now, the Lord doesn't. But the point is, as a father and mother, as Jesus says, if we being evil know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more our Heavenly Father? He's going to do, he, he, he sees us through the eyes of a loving father, and he sees us with the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. That's how he looks at us. And what Satan wants us to do is look at ourselves as low down, no good, dirty sinners. We have a new nature, and that nature is the nature of our father through his son, Jesus Christ, as his Holy Spirit dwells in us. And we need to understand that that is the gospel. That is justification. It's not that the Lord doesn't understand that we fall. He understands, though, that he has declared us righteous because he has judged us based upon the person of Jesus Christ and his work. That's justification, you see. And so if Jesus Christ doesn't condemn us, then why do we condemn ourselves? But that's what Satan, that's what his job is, to condemn the saints, you see. But we have been declared righteous, not guilty. It's interesting, speaking of the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote the following, speaking of this very thing, justification by faith. He wrote, this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary, it is therefore that we know this article well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. If the notion of justification by faith is lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. So the truth of the gospel, it is that by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been justified. And it is justification by faith and not works of the law, which brings us to the next part. Not only does he tell us what it is, but he tells us what the truth of the gospel is not. What it does not mean is this. It doesn't mean that one may be justified by keeping the law. Now, the law, what does, this, what does Paul mean by the law? The law refers to the sum total of all of God's commandments. Works of law refer to the acts of obedience to the sum total of all of God's commandments. That is, doing everything the law demands and refraining from everything it forbids. It is obeying the sum total of all of God's commandments perfectly. Who of us has done that? Who of us will ever do that? You see, it is impossible for us to do that. And it is presumptuous and arrogant to think that we can even make any contribution toward that. Because we cannot. We fall short. In Isaiah 64, 6, the Lord says through his prophet, all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. And let me tell you, that's the soft version of that. In Romans 3, 23, 
He says, for all have sinned, missed the mark. We were talking about it in our BFG today. It's the idea of uh, sin is, is the, to miss the mark. It's the idea of an archer shooting at the target. And it's not just missing the mark, but he goes on to say, fall short. Picture shooting that arrow. I remember when I was in seventh grade, we had uh, an element of, in our gym class of archery. And I remember that's the first time I had ever had a real bow and arrow besides the little string ones I had when I was a little kid with the little suction cups on the ends of them. But um, I got that, and I remember the first time I thought, man, there's a little, there's a little pull of this thing. I've got, I've got, there, there needs to be some muscle here that's not quite here uh, to pull that. And I remember first shooting, falling way short of that target. And that's what he's saying for all of us when it comes to our attempt to live perfectly God's law, to do all the sum total of what he has commanded. We fall short of that, and we will never reach it, no matter how hard we try. Also, what the truth of the gospel does not mean, it does not mean that faith in Christ Jesus promotes sin. You see, in verses 17 through 19, very difficult passage here, but the issue is this. They're, they're saying, if, if what you're saying is true, Paul, that all we have to do is believe, then doesn't this mean that it really doesn't matter how I live? Isn't that really what you're saying? And one might say, all I have to do is believe in Jesus Christ, and then I can sin all I want to. In fact, my father told me a story about my granddaddy, and this actually happened. Someone said to him, so you're telling me that all you have to do is believe in Christ, and then what I can do then is if I just believe in Christ, I can sin all I want to. And my dad told me, my granddaddy's reply to this man was, when I believed in Christ Jesus, the Lord changed my want to. And that's exactly what happens. He changes our desires. And that is what Paul is saying here. Their charge is, well, if we believe in Christ, then this makes us out to be sinners because our sin doesn't matter. <clears throat> and what he's saying is, no, it does matter. You see, when we are justified by faith in Christ Jesus, not only has our legal status changed, but our character has changed. We do have a new nature. We are united with Christ in faith, by faith, and therefore we are not the same people we used to be. So speak, speaking of going back to the old life is impossible for people who are truly a new creation. We have new desires to live for Christ. In the words of my granddaddy, in Christ, God has changed my want to. And that is what Paul is saying here. He's saying that, that God has changed me, that I have been justified in Christ, that we are in him and he is in us and we are not the same people that we used to be. And so it is a ridiculous concept of Paul to talking about 
a, a, an anti-law, anti-holiness kind of thing. And yet we see this much today. There are a lot of believers that have this idea, well, it's all under grace, so it doesn't matter how I live. I had a student years ago, um, I was in an Old Testament class talking about the law, and he raised his hand. He said, Dr. Betts, why are you talking about that? He said, we just live by the law of love anyhow. And I asked him, I said, well, what does that look like? Does, does the law of love mean that I'm going to steal from you? Does the law of love mean that I'm going to sleep with your wife? Tell me exactly what that looks like. You see, it's not just some gushy, kind of sugary, hypothetical, theoretical concept. It is a life that is lived out day by day in holiness. Because of the Spirit of God living in us, we have a desire to be like Christ because of who Christ is and because of the witness of his Holy Spirit within us. And so, so what does the truth of the gospel mean to every believer? What does it mean then? Well, notice verses 20 and 21. I want to read these again as we look at this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live is live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died needlessly. What does the truth of the gospel mean to all of us who are believers? First of all, it means that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Jesus Christ gave his life for me. He gave his life for you. It's just what Peter says in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. It means Christ took my life from me so that, number three, he may live his life through me. He took my life from me so that he might live his life through me. That's what it means for all of us who are believers. That's what justification by faith means. And fourthly, as we look at verse 21... It means that the death of Christ means something. It does mean something. What does it mean? The death of Christ means the righteous requirements of God's justice were met when Jesus died in our place. Aren't you glad of that? It also means that the death of Christ, that, that he paid the penalty for our sin. He paid the penalty. The death of Christ displays the great exchange. Christ took upon himself our sin, and we took upon ourselves his righteousness. And then the death of Christ means that by God's grace through faith in Christ Jesus, we have been justified, declared not guilty in God's divine court, and made beloved children of God. That's the truth of the gospel. Why would anyone want to dip into our works when we can look to the perfect work of Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our only Father, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. And each believer here tonight, Father, it is our desire 
that that truth would permeate every bit of our being. That we would recognize that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sin and that by our putting our faith in his person and his work that we may be justified, declared not guilty. And we thank you, Father, and we pray that that we would be ever mindful that when you look for us, that we would not listen to the, the attacks of Satan and the ridicule and, and, and the remarks he makes where he, he points out our sin. But may we look to you and look to what you say. That we have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ and that we are righteous in your eyes. And that we truly are beloved children. May that be real and permeate our very thinking and understanding each day. And Father, in light of that, I pray that you would help us and give us a new sense of urgency to declare that gospel to those around us. And that we would be willing to go wherever you would lead us, that we would be willing to stay wherever you keep us and be faithful to living out the gospel and to be faithful to proclaiming that gospel to the glory of Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you. And it is in Jesus' name we pray.